Welcome to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. We would like to offer thanks to all you heretics and maniacs for your continued support and encourage you to visit our website at monstersmadnessandmagic.com to stay up to date on all the dark dealings within the Sanctuary of the Strange. We can also be found slithering our way into your nearest social media platforms. Be sure to follow Monsters, Madness, and Magic on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show and would like to unlock Patreon-exclusive content, consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash Monsters Madness Magic. Enjoy the show. <laughs> Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper, here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, joined by my co-hosts, Daniel and Mitch. Say hello, Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Say hello, Mitch. Hello, Mitch. And this evening, we are joined by a very special guest, multi-platinum producer, songwriter, lawyer, author, A&R consultant uh, for Atlantic Records, Mr. Jeff Blue. Jeff, how the hell are you? I'm how the hell? I'm good. I'm doing very good. I don't know if you see my dog. My dog is like trying to jump up here, but uh, I'm doing great. You know, we just got through showing you all the, uh, the fun stuff out here in, in the living room with the uh, air hockey machines and the, oh, yeah, the yeah. arcade game. So life is good, you know? Yes, sir. So I guess we'll just start at the beginning here. Uh, I assume your love for music was cultivated early. What were you listening to growing up? And did you have a eureka moment to where you kind of decided to pursue music? Well, pursue a career in the music industry. Wow. Well, um, it kind of goes back to these socioeconomic times when I was growing up. But um, the, I was a huge rock fan. So uh, I grew up in the era of Kiss in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I was a huge lover of, of Kiss, but my favorite band was Queen. I was uh, listening to Aerosmith, um, Zeppelin, and on the bus, I was just in love with, uh, this was like 1979, 1980, um, uh, Van Halen, ACDC. Those were the things that really, like, grabbed me. Um, and... Uh, at the same time, I actually, so I was, in, I was uh, integrated into uh, a school. And so that school was predominantly, you know, it was very, very diverse. Mm -hmm. And so I was turned on to like Grandmaster Flash and uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson. So I was getting that experience in, uh, in actually the, the school. And then when I was going home, I was in all the, the rock stuff. And so that actually had a pretty big influence on me across the board. And then also like that whole dance era stuff. So there was a big mix yeah. of everything. Some of the Eagles stuff. So it was like, there was so many different uh, elements in the school I was going to because, you know, we were uh, integrated into this one school. I was pretty interested. So I think that all affected me, to be honest with you, uh, in my musical taste. Now, did you grow up in the L.A. area? Yeah, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Actually, where, uh, you know, Lincoln Park, ironically, was from. Now, I was more the Canoga Park, West Hills area, and those guys were predominantly from uh, Agora, and then Chester was obviously from Phoenix and stuff. Oh, wow. So you're actually homegrown. There's a lot of people I meet with has an, uh, they're, you know, of course, they're transplants. You're not from L.A., but uh, the, so you're actually from there. That's cool. Yeah, I love L.A. <laughs> I keep everybody's moving to, like, you know, Dallas and Florida. I, I love L.A. I love, you know. 
I know it gets a bad rap uh, and we have some issues, but I, I love, I love the city and I love everywhere around it. You got the, you know, the ocean, the mountains and it's good, man. Yeah. yeah. So were you any bands yourself back in the day? Yeah, I sure was. Um, I was in a, uh, I was in a band when I was 13 and we were playing like, God, the police and stuff like that, Led Zeppelin and, and, uh, then I was actually in a band when I was in law school, uh, and that's actually it was the precursor to how I understood what A&R was. I was in a band, uh, I'm embarrassed to say the name, but it was called Monkey Suit. One of the worst band names, I'm sure there's worse, but uh, it was <laughs> me, me and my uh, law school roommate, and you know, I played drums, a little bit of guitar very badly, and keyboard very badly, um, but we were the primary writers, and long, long story short, because of that band, one of my fraternity brothers from UCLA told me, hey, you should meet my brother, his actual brother, who actually worked at Geffen Records. And Geffen was the nice. home of Guns N' Roses yeah. and you know, Whitesnake and yeah, just everything, Zombie. And, and so I go there thinking, uh, you know, I was just talking to this guy and he, he sits me down and you know, I was wearing, I had, I had really long hair. I actually found a, a photo of me with the long hair pulled back in a ponytail glasses and you know the earring the long ass earring with you know the the angel i believe hanging from it you know yeah. and uh and he's yeah. like he's like yeah oh and i was wearing a tie i was wearing you know oxford shirt you know polo shirt with a tie and penny loafers and i didn't know what the hell i was there to meet for really you know and he's like man i love your band he goes you're incredible i love the fact that you're a great drummer and that you also write and i'm like wow this guy knows me and everything i want to do he's like i want to sign your band you guys are incredible you know, I caught your show at the whiskey. It was amazing. And I'm like, and right before this, mind you, he's telling me you're going to be signing chests with, you know, markers, like all the music videos, and we're going to stick you on airplanes and touring. My, my young head is, you know, going through the moon. I'm like, God, it's the best day of my life. I'm going to get out of law school. And he tells me about the whiskey show that I just did. And I'm like, yeah, I never really did a whiskey show. You mean Madame Wong's, which is a, an old place. He goes, you did a, a show at Madame Wong's. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I go, well, can you get us at the whiskey? And he's like, wait, wait. And he, he, of course, he comes to realize I am absolutely the, not the guy that he's trying to sign. And I decide, I go, I go, he goes, you're going to have to leave. And I'm just like, well, I'm not leaving your office with all these plaques. And he handed me all these CDs. I'm like, I'm not giving up these CDs. It's like gold, you know? <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, you got to leave. And he goes, I'm, I thought you were somebody else. And I'm like, look, I, I go, I'm not going to leave here until you tell me exactly what you do. And he explains that he does A&R and the guy gets actually paid to go see bands. And then I still can understand how you make money doing that. And he goes, <laughs> no, and he goes, I get money. I get paid to advise the record label on who we should sign. I'm like, that makes zero sense. I go, who would pay you to do that? Because I do that shit free. And he's like, no, it's, it's a real job. And he told me to go to this lecture. He was, participating on at uh at ucla i go i sneak into the lecture of course didn't have the money to pay for it and uh literally that night i was like this is what i want to do with my life what the hell am i doing in law school studying my brains out and uh so i decided to become an anr person and then that was a whole nother thing that had zero experience and how do you go and do that and i just <laughs> said this is what i'm doing with my life and uh yeah that kind of everything happened from there and ironically Teaching at UCLA is also how I discovered Brad because he became my intern from uh, UCLA when I got a job as a music publisher. But yeah, that was the, that was the very start of my uh, career. But I was in uh, a couple of different bands. I was also in a band called Atomic Boy that uh, and a band called Speaker, which originally was called Meet Nixon, which was amazing. And we both those bands got signed to uh, one Capricorn and one was AM. And I was a drummer and a producer and writer for this. That's band. what I was fixing to ask. So what did you actually play? I was always a drummer, um, but I produced and I wrote lyric and a lot of lyric and melody. And I found out for any musicians out there who are actually drummers that write lyric and melody, you don't get any credit until you actually can play another instrument well enough. And so <laughs> I was writing, I was always getting shit about, oh, you're, you're a drummer, you know, you, you didn't really write this and that. I'm like, you know, these I did, you know, and so it wasn't until uh, I was already senior VP of RCA Records and produced a ton. Yeah, I'd been at uh, Interscope and Warner Brothers and Zamba Publishing that I actually took an actual piano class uh, at a Valley College while I was 
you know, racing up to work for Clive Davis, you know, so the class was like 8 a.m., you know, I bailed and, you know, was in the office by 10. And uh, the first song I actually wrote after playing piano, I won a BMI award for, uh, went Ooh. number one in nine countries. Yeah, it's called Pictures of You. It was like a pop song, but got the band signed to uh, Virgin. So, yeah, I played, no, and I played everything pretty much. Dude, nice. So how do you find that pipe, like, just to be the A&R? Like you said, it just kind of sort of fell in your lap like that. Like, where is that pipeline? Does it even exist nowadays anymore? I'm curious. Oh, well, so when I took that class and I was in law school, I decided A&R is what I want to do. I want to go out and discover bands, but there was no way to get that job. So right. you had to basically intern. So I interned for a company called Rhino Records, and nice. my boss hated my guts. Um <laughs> In fact, uh, he told my roommate who took the job after me, they were all at this big dinner and they were discussing, you know, God, who was, you know, they never took me out to any meals, but they were always taking the other interns out. And I don't know if it was because I had the long hair or whatever it was. They were talking around this Christmas uh, lunch they took everybody out to. And my roommate was the intern that they had. And like, who was, who was that intern that we had? God, that guy was awful, blah, blah, blah. And my Buddy Lee, who was actually in the band with me, Monkey Suit, was like, who was that guy? What was that guy? The guy that was this awful. And was like, what was his name? Uh, Jeff, Jeff Blue. And then Lee, my buddy Lee just spurts out his, you know, his drink. He's like, <laughs> oh. He's like are you okay? He's like, yeah, so he didn't mention he, he actually knew me. And uh, so the, after that, I got an uh, internship at MCA Records. Uh, and I talked to everybody there. Nobody would give me a job. But this guy, Denny Deontay, told me, he goes, man, he goes, you're way too educated and way too driven. Uh, and he gave me all these tapes to listen to. I analyzed the hell out of them, broke down the uh, pre-choruses, choruses, bridges, verses, you know, structure. And he's like, what the hell is this? He goes, I asked you to listen to a box of demos. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, oh my dog. You guys go home one second. Sorry. Gotcha. No go problem. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was actually trying to get in on the meeting, but I didn't want to interrupt the flow of it. So she can either fuck off or maybe she'll come back. Uh, that's, that's a sign of a spoiled dog. Front, inside, back, outside, axis. Um, well, better be. So, <laughs> uh, oh, so I end up uh, analyzing the hell out of these tapes. And he's like, man, you're way too smart. <laughs> he's like, we, I just want to, I want to know if these songs or these artists are worth seeing or not, because I just want to yay or nay. Just, you know, I'm like, so I gave him an entire booklet of analysis on every band and every song broken down to the actual notes. Jeez. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you're, you're very intimidating. And he's like, he's like, nobody's going to hire you because you're, you're that, you know, intense with everything you do. And so I noticed that everybody around all the A&R people were reading music magazines. And I'm like, okay, I got to get in somehow. And so I decided to become a journalist. And uh, I literally hit up every music magazine around. Nobody would give me a job. And uh, finally, I called, uh, you guys heard of Music Connection magazine? I'm not familiar. Don't it was a pretty so. big LA uh, magazine. It was sold at all the 7-Elevens and drugstores and whatnot. And it covered all the local talent. And I called and I called and it was rejected a million times until some woman answered and she goes are you one of our writers and i go i sure am and she's like she's like oh she goes well i'm a brand new editor today's my first day and everything's unorganized and she's like, I, I need you to cover something immediately i'm like fantastic i'm there yes and of course she couldn't find my name anywhere and she that goes is awesome. I can't find it. she goes i can't find anything you've written i go it should be there somewhere That's weird and she yeah and so uh she, you know, she's like, no, there's nothing. And she goes, just send me what you've written for us. And I go, you know, it's, it's a, the craziest thing, but my apartment was ransacked. They took my, you know, my computer, everything. And she's like, wow, she said, that's horrible. And she goes, well, I can't give you anything until we actually show you. We don't even have you on the payroll. And I'm like, that's really weird. And so long story short, I confused her again. Somehow she got me on a couple uh, articles that I did and I just started getting requested and you know, she forgot that I wasn't really a writer. And I wrote for Billboard, Entertainment Weekly. I started my own magazine called Crossroads, which only focused on unknown talent. Um, so I was like the writer that did all the, you know, the bands that were never signed. And I would analyze what made them good, what I'd recommend. And then I started a cable access show on unsigned artists. 
if anybody knows what cable access is, this is back in the day. <laughs> it was like uh, free. You could go on. Anybody could come on and do whatever they wanted on cable. I miss those days. Yeah, it was embarrassing. We called it. We I had a, uh, a, a show called Rating the Bands. And uh, my partner that we did it is now a pretty big entertainment lawyer, too. We, we met uh, taking the bar in law school. So, Dude. yeah. For anyone, anyone curious who all you little kiddies out there listening, cable access is the equivalent. There was a show that John C. Riley did on Adult Swim, like where he was the doctor, Milton Brule, I think was it. Steve Brule. That's it. That's what cable (laughs) access looks like. And for those who are slightly older, Wayne's World. Yes. Wayne's World is based on that is cable access. That's about to give anybody an idea. And that's what we looked like. Right. Party on. The long hair, my buddy, his name was Riff. I met this guy, <laughs> Riff, if nice. you're out there, Riff, he, he's an attorney for Nick Ferrara. Um, oh, my doors are, um, Nick, and he's a big entertainment uh, attorney, uh, loves rock, Riff Pacerik. It was Robert Riff, and we met uh, taking the bar in Los Angeles, and we, we were the only two guys uh, taking the bar that had shoulder-length hair, and we entered the... Ho- the uh, hotel um, elevator together and we look at each other like you're not taking the bar are you and we're like yeah we're like oh <laughs> shit we're gonna hey, he made it I-, I failed the first time but uh i made it the second time but uh yeah robert riff Pacerik. you're out there rob yeah <laughs> I-, I love the name <laughs> and i still oh yeah i gotta tell him that we're, we're on we're on this so yeah he was great and we started this cable access show and you know then i went on and did all my uh you know joined my bands and and told him i wanted to do a and R, and he did the the lawyer thing. So yeah, that's awesome. Hey. Jeff, I saw in another interview of yours that you said that going to law school was a detriment to you getting into the music business. Tell us about that a little bit. How was that? Uh, yeah. So as I said during the uh, the internships, uh, I was told you know I was trying to get uh, interviews for jobs to be uh, an assistant, and people would look at it and, you know, even this guy, Danny Deontay said, he goes, you're overqualified to do this stuff. He goes, you're, you know, I was 24 when I passed the bar. So I was 22 when I was uh, interning for these companies and, and people were like, you know, you've got a law degree. You're just going to be intimidating. Was, and people advised me constantly to take it off my resume. One guy, Warner brothers, uh, who was a big, po- I, you know, I even was doing anything, any job I could get. So this was an interview for the assistant in publicity. And the guy goes, he goes, look, I'm going to be honest. He goes, I'm not going to hire you because I don't want my job taken. And he goes, right. he goes straight up. He goes, you're, you're too overqualified because you've gone to law school. You have a music magazine. You've you know, played in bands. He's like, you're going to take somebody's job, whoever's going to hire you. So he goes, that's the reason. And, uh, and I respected that. And uh, he goes, I would take law school off your resume. And I did. And I started getting job interviews. And then, uh, uh, the last, I don't know if you guys are, you guys are probably not old enough to remember, but there was a thing called the, uh, yellow pages of rock. And it had a listing. It was like a, a book. Yay. High. Like it was enormous. You had to purchase. It was like 300 bucks. And it had a listing of every phone number address for every <laughs> single music company in the music business. I bought <laughs> it was something like that. I think it was called the essential musicians guide by this time. I bought mine in, I think it was 99, but it was roughly the same thing. You probably got one of my letters because it was just, it had, oh. it had addresses and listings of every single company that you could send to their department. So I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it wasn't all that name, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, this was 1992 to four, something like that. And I hit up every company I was sending out, <laughs> you know, copies of all my articles because at this time I had written probably a hundred articles for a music connection, bam, rip, uh, <laughs> God, uh, entertainment week, uh, a billboard, especially. Mm-hmm. And I was getting rejected by everybody. And finally I got a, um, I called up this company called Zomba and yeah. it was the last letter. It was Z O M B A. And it was the last name in the entire phone book because there was nothing past Z O. And I didn't give a crap and it called up and I, this guy answers and he's, we're talking. He goes, yeah, he goes, we don't have a job, but I think the publishing side may. And, and he said, like, we were talking, he goes, we have my background. He worked at Geffen, but he was a lawyer, but he worked at A&R. I'm like, oh, I'm a lawyer. He goes, really? He goes, because some of the creative people here are lawyers. 
that opened up our dialogue. And uh, of course, I, you know, I, I went out, flew out my, uh, to New York and was rejected, of course. <laughs> and my bot, the, the head of the publishing uh, company said, you know, he goes, you don't have any experience. And I basically, you know, I came back two days later after being rejected. And then I spent a little two extra days in New York just to tell him, I go, you're making the biggest mistake you're ever going to make in your life. You're going to make somebody a lot of money. And I was super upset. And I just go, you know, because that was my last shot. Z-O, there's nothing past it. You're done. Go home, kid. And so I went home after telling him he was going to miss out on making a lot of money. And I got a call like a month and a half later. And I guess they couldn't find anybody to work for uh, the 25 grand they were offering for the head of, you know, the director of A&R. So I took it. <laughs> 25 grand. I negotiated it up, though. It was originally 23, I think it was like $23,075 a year. I got, I got that extra, I got extra like 1200 bucks. So, yeah, I mean, progress. Yeah. But God. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I only signed corn, limp biscuit, you know, uh, all for, all for nothing. We signed Lincoln parks publishing deal was 4,000 bucks. Wow. I had, we could have had Nickelback for 4,000 bucks too, but my boss didn't want to sign. Wow. After their, their first, uh show they ever played in vancouver in a record store that's a whole nother story but yeah so what was the very first band that you signed uh, it was my band ah. i signed my own band <laughs> how convenient props man props and i got them a deal uh it was a band there's a band called speaker it signed to capricorn records which was the home of like uh, 311 and then after that i signed a band called fat uh, which was a rap rock band out of uh london and ironically, I don't know if you guys know A.D. Roundtree, but he's now one of the head rock guys over at iHeartRadio. And he and I are starting the podcast, the music podcast. Uh, he was the lead singer um, uh, of Fat. And, uh, and then right after that, I signed uh, Macy. Oh, I signed all in like a period of two, three months. I signed Corn, Macy Gray, and Limp Bizkit. Hey. Yeah, I was just on a roll and I brought in like Matchbox 20. Uh, we didn't end up getting to sign them, but I still have, I don't know if you can see in the background past there, but I have the diamond plaques from Matchbox 20. And I got involved with a lot of cool artists I brought in. Um, but Zombo is a small publishing company. We only wanted to do really small deals. So, Right. Dude, that's amazing. Because you have Matchbox 20. I mean, they were like, they were the next iteration of Hootie and the Blowfish. You couldn't go exactly. into, a, into a coffee shop or a cafe without hearing Matchbox. I mean, like Jesus Christ, every song on that, that cd that first cd that came out it's like every song hit the top 10 didn't it yeah it was one of the biggest uh ironically i think it's one of the biggest selling uh albums next to uh lincoln park's hybrid theory but i didn't get to sign them actually a funny story about that uh they wanted to you know their manager wanted to be signed to a bigger publishing company so we had the deal done and it got pulled last second but uh rob thomas he goes man he goes show me you really want to sign my band I told them, and do you guys remember a show called Studs back in the day on Fox? It was one of, the, one of the first iterations of, of dating game shows. And he goes, you were on that show Studs. I'm like, yeah, he goes, send me that, that tape. <laughs> and it was a dating show, and you know, it was like King Stud. <laughs> and, of course, I won. And so he's like, I got to see that. He goes, because he remembered me from that show back in the day, <laughs> like 1989 or something. And so I sent it to him and still didn't get to uh, – <laughs> didn't get to sign the guys but he, he gave me the plaques and we're, we're still good friends um but he's always he always was impressed that i actually sent him a very embarrassing dating game show of me so, so you were with corn like from the beginning was that um whenever, no i actually got were to in? sign them uh, uh right before uh follow the leader uh, they uh they were dropped uh, i guess one in chapel they want to re-up and uh but i had actually covered corn uh before they were signed as a journalist mm-hmm. so I was a huge fan. I covered them. Uh, I think they played like club, a uh, club called Club Lingerie. And uh, I remember, you know, uh, the bagpipes. And I actually yeah. found the article recently. Uh, and it was just, you know, they had shoots and ladders. I think they they were playing and, you know, blind. And I was just like, this, this yeah, band has changed the world. That's um, how I remembered them is whenever they were real underground, at least down here at the time. I mean, like real underground and they got notable, of course, because of seven string guitars and the clicky way that he played, the, that they played the bass, but yeah. they had, they had a groove to it. But yeah, I just, I remember even before they, all of a sudden it was almost meteoric 
they jump up with follow the or even before follow the leader, but like before all of that with blind, yeah. blind actually got put. It was on that comp CD they sold at Walmart. They put blind in that, and then the Street Fighter Two animated movie. Blind was at the credit crawl at the end of it. And yep. when that came on, I knew who they were. And then it played on a Street Fighter animated movie. It was like, holy shit, it's them. I remember that band. And so, yeah, it's just cool that you, you there, you saw. It's just cool that you actually saw it, too. It's like what they were yeah, doing. Yeah, I was, was just a journalist. And I, had, I literally had no experience at the time. It was one of the first bands I covered as a journalist. And, um, you know, I was just like, God, these guys are amazing. And when they're publishing was available i was like you've got to be kidding jumped on it <laughs> yeah i just couldn't believe they you know a publisher didn't want it and it was it was warner they were signed to warner chapel and i just grabbed it i was like we got to sign these guys and then follow the leader happened and that, that album was so commercial and yeah. uh you know that along with uh limp biscuit you know that was just i was just super um into that that sound and the emotion in it you know so when you're going to check a band out back in the day, what are some things you're looking for? The what would make you sign a band? Well, I was a little different. I I didn't really care about the fan base. Um, obviously, Lincoln Park. If you guys uh, read the book, uh, Lincoln Park had no fan base at all. I signed them off the first show. Um, I go on gut instinct a hundred percent. I don't care if there's anybody in the room. I mean, it, it definitely helps to see fans or kids' reactions. But the most important thing is people who have never seen it before, if they can, you know, grab those, those people's attention, somebody who doesn't know who it is. Um, but I go after something that's authentic and uh, that really comes from the ability for an artist to connect with somebody else and uh, make them feel like they belong and hit that, that nerve with people that uh, seems true and that you believe it, you know, like that, that's one thing that I think really separates great artists um you know the ability to connect but it, it also happens to, uh one of the things that's important to me is an iconic sound and that just doesn't have to be a vocal um the vocals have to be great for the most part but it has to be any type of thing where you within five notes you exactly know who that artist is and you know the of course corn you can hear that you know bass sound jonathan sounds iconic even limp biscuit fred you can't miss you know um John and Sam, they're, they're the, the rhythm section. Uh, obviously, with Lincoln Park, you know, you know exactly who Mike Shinoda is. Even the programming, um, you know, and and the DJ stuff with with Johan, and uh, you know, obviously Chester's vocals are, are super iconic. But everybody's emulated Chester's vocals. It seems like now, you know, um, it's prevalent in everything that's rock these days. Uh, but I think that's the most important thing, and you know. The, Back in the day, I would always just listen like Queen. That's unmistakable. Brian May's guitar playing, mm -hmm. um, the drumming, and I think that had a lot to do with uh, Roy Thomas Baker's uh, production on the drums. It always, it always sounds like there's a snare with a hat, you know, and really punchy. Everything, and obviously Freddie Mercury is the most, in my opinion, the best singer ever. Uh, but everything has to be iconic and identifiable and urgent. You know, you know, there has to be something in there where you've got, I've got to hear more of this. Um, and I think that's, you know, lacking in a lot of stuff these days. There's there's one artist in particular that I love, that I champion very, very early, and they're doing really well in the rock market. Um, but yeah, I uh, that's what draws me to an artist is, you know, being authentic and true to their vision, you know. Um, there's too many artists who just sound like everything else, and, you know, they could do well, but it doesn't really excite me. And I assume, because yeah, Daniel and I are, are both musicians as well, I assume as a musician, it's a lot easier for you to tell if that band is authentic or if they're just kind of bullshitting and doing it to do it or doing it for the wrong reasons. I assume that probably also helps a lot too because you're yeah. you're coming from a musical standpoint. You you know what it feels like when someone plays something and they're, they're actually playing it authentically with feeling and not just mm -hmm. being there being a backing track, essentially. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And that also has bit me in the ass because I'll replace people. I, I've gone out to many, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I replaced the vocalist in Lincoln Park, the first guy, um, because it didn't, huh. it didn't, didn't strike me uh, as being authentic and, you know, was blessed to happen to find Chester. 
Um, really? But Chester didn't come in until, yeah, I, I urge you guys to read the book. It's really, it goes through that entire process about, yeah, the original incarnation of Lincoln Park. I had a totally different vocalist uh, for the first two years. And, uh, <laughs> yes, read the book. One step closer beyond uh, becoming Lincoln Park. Yes. Uh, from zero to number one. Yeah, I went through uh, I had a couple of different bass players, but Dave was the original bass player, finally came back in. But uh, we uh, got rid of, um, we made a change with this guy, Mark Wakefield. And uh, I found Chester as a complete fluke uh, when I was hanging out at South by Southwest uh, in the uh, Four Seasons bar drinking. And uh, Chester's attorney for Grey Days, uh, he was just telling us, you know, constantly how bad the show was with uh, Zero, which was the original Lincoln Park, and how we blew it, you know, with the, the original singer, and we got rid of him, but how horrible that show was, because we had, when we uh, showcased Lincoln Park, um, and we had an offer from Geffen Records, the band wanted to do an extra showcase, just to boost it up, and, you know, me and the attorney, Danny Hayes, uh, said, you know, no, let's just, let's go with Geffen, and the, the band wanted to do this showcase, and literally every single record label you can imagine all the heads Clive Davis um, Rick Rubin uh, you name it everybody showed up to the show and it was brutal the, the lead singer was out of key the whole place cleared out uh, and we had to change the band name we, we ended up having to let, let the singer go and uh, we were the band almost broke up entirely so um, yeah wow. lot to read one step closer by the book I'm, now on house I'm going to. <laughs> That uh yeah I didn't even know I mean I don't even like Lincoln Park I just that's cool to, uh, the story you know, alone you don't have to honestly man you don't have to like the band to uh, no I want to read about it though I read about all the like just the behind the scenes stuff to to learn about it that's that's awesome just the the little tidbits you just told me it's like yeah I got to read this <laughs> yeah it has to do everything with uh, overcoming rejection and to stay true to your vision. Um, yeah, again, you don't have to like the band at all because that's it's, the it, important part. Staying true. Yeah, it could be for anybody trying to do anything they want in life. Uh, as you know, it could be you know starting up a, a company or you know, God knows what you know, whatever yeah. it is. This is the same tenets you should follow because you're going to get rejected all on the way. It's just part <laughs> of life, you know. Like yeah. uh, same with girls, you know. I mean, you know, you're going to get rejected almost all the time. You know, but there's the, the one you just keep forging through. You know, like you're gonna find somebody who actually likes you. You know, <laughs> right? So I'm assuming this was all mid late '90s. Uh, how has te the advancement of technology kind of shifted the job? I assume a lot more demos come in digitally, and there's just a more of an influx of numbers. numbers yeah, numbers. I mean, right now for record labels, uh, they really focus on you know. What playlists are you on? You know, with your followers, me likes, your engagement. It's completely different now. Spotify plays such a huge part in it. Um, you know, and again, I really never cared about that stuff. Macy Gray, when I signed her, if you guys remember her, she had no following whatsoever. Daniel Powder, who that song had a bad day, no followers. Lincoln Park, zero followers. <laughs> um, you know, I, I really don't care. And to this day, I don't care too, but the record labels do. So when I, when I take on an artist and shop them, um, the label is always asking, you know, what are the social metrics? You know, it's, it's a big deal. Um, much easier to get demo tapes, uh, you know, de demo tapes, but demos and, and songs. And they all, it, it made the bar of um, the quality and the production and the songs much more important because now everybody can do that. Everybody has a home studio. Uh, so that's much more difficult for artists. They've got to, you know, they got to come with the goods a way stronger. Um, you know, it's all across the board, you know, there's way more competition because everybody can submit. Um, so the deciding factor for a lot of, lot of record labels, not me per se, but is, you know, your followers and your engagement because they're not going to develop you. They don't, you know, the right. A&R function is very different. It's more of spotting the trends and, uh, finding, you know, who is actually uh, engaging and, um, monetizing it as compared to, you know, what it used to be is like developing actual music and um, and being concerned with that and the longevity of a career. Now it's obviously very singles driven. 
Um, bullshit that we've gotten away from that too. It's awful that we just we don't. The music industry doesn't care about developing bands. They just want to turn out singles. It seems for a quick return on their money. Yeah, um, I mean that's why rock is really taking such a big hit because you know it's there hasn't been a lot of great. I mean, the, the other thing too is I don't think there's been a lot of great rock out there. I haven't been inspired. <laughs> there's some really cool rock bands, but you know it's. It's difficult. Um, you know, my favorite band out right now is my my buddy's the drummer. My best friend's the drummer, and the, I'm just, I'm doing a docu series, and the band's in it. They're called Grandson, and the lead you know the lead guy uh, Grandson Jordan, uh, his delivery is amazing, super authentic, super believable, uh, and the the band behind it is freaking awesome to watch. Um, a lot of attitude, like Rage Against the Machine. Um, you know, with trap, rock, so you've got something for everybody, you know, kind of has like a vibe of young blood, but way ed edgier, uh, just super cool, man, just tons of uh, energy on stage, too, it's like pretty awesome. I love how you mentioned demo tapes, that's because that's back in fashion now anyway, so it's just nice <laughs> you still mentioned it because i still call that too demo. <laughs> fuck's sake I, that's what i sell or cassette yeah. with my label so yeah i i just <laughs> you could say it is fine <laughs> what's old is new again everything yeah, gets man, returned it's, uh, yeah <laughs> it's crazy so uh, no it's, you know i think anything you know is evolutionary whether rock will come back again i, I sure hope it does but um it's difficult. I, I talked to one band who I was interested in and I was like, Hey, you just need to do this, that, and the other. And I go, and I can get you, I'm sure I can get you a deal at this one label. And they go, Oh, we just had a deal there. We got dropped. I'm like, God, I'm like, did they yeah. give you any guidance? He's like, no, man. He goes, we just turned in what we want. I go, well, I could have told you that would have been death. I go from what you played me. I go, it needs to be more commercial for it. Cause it was a major label. Um, but it was, I was on the right track. Cause I'm like, I was going to take them to this label. Um, but yeah, quietly they got, they got dropped. So mm. well, help me with this. Then you did, <laughs> you've done what I've been working to do for God over a decade. Now you've actually had dealings with the movie score. Like you did queen of the damned, right? Um, that whole soundtrack uh, composition is different. Obviously. How um, did you find then, that pipeline? How, how did I find it? Well, I got to close this. Uh, my dog opened up. How did I find it? <laughs> yeah, go uh, tend to the dog. He's really mad now. <laughs> no, no, he's, uh, he opened up. He can't. It's a big glass door. Um, uh, how did I get into soundtrack or how did I? What, what do you mean? Let me look at it. Let me work it this way. I want to score film because, I mean, I score music is you know it is what it is i do all kinds of black metal death metal doesn't matter but i really want to score for film and so just curious it's like you're there you're on top how do you find like how do you connect with that pipeline to actually score for film like john carpenter or eric Eckholm or you know people that so um i have friends who do that i don't compose for film um Music supervising is actually finding songs um, and licensing them for the soundtracks, choosing the songs for them. So very different than actually composing. Um, like Queen of the Dance, it was uh, Jonathan and or Richard Gibbs, I believe, mm -hmm. um, who did the, the, the actual soundtrack. So it's very different. Music supervising is, yeah, a different animal. Um, but that's a whole thing. I mean, like knowing the... Uh, director, producer, and in like that, um, you know, generally being out in LA really helps. The, a lot of where the movie studios are and whatnot. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that do that, um, but yeah, it's a whole different beast as uh, just being like a, a band. Usually, a composer obviously will write the, the background music for that. You know, a lot of it, a lot of times it's you know orchestrated. So, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Think Yanni. And if I played live, it would have spikes and corpse paint too. But no, just mainly, I'm just curious about the composition aspects of just getting into that to do the score. Cause like, you know, you're credited as the executive producer for the song on Queen of the Dam. So, I mean, hell, you're a lot further along than I am. So I just I figured I'd ask. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, again, that was the record, executive producer of the album. The album didn't contain the score, the album was actually songs inspired by. 
So that's a whole Dude, that thing theory. hit big. I remember when that movie came out. And uh, first of all, you've got Aaliyah half naked in the whole trailer. So at the time, when did that come out? Uh, what year? 2002? Oh, yeah. So that was targeted right at me because when the trailer comes on, that's all I'm looking at is Aaliyah. And then you hear nothing but the soundtrack is just being pumped through the radio at the time and stuff. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, you, <laughs> I get it, just picking songs to put on an album, but I mean, give well, credit to were, that soundtrack because there are certain movies have soundtracks that are just, that are a really big deal. The most notable I can tell you is Transformers, the movie from 1986. Right. That movie was basically made for that soundtrack. The but Lost it, Boys. Queen of the Dam was the same thing. It lost Boys. Lost, yeah, yeah. another one. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's when soundtracks were so much bigger, you know. Um, and there, there was a period during the '90s where soundtracks were, you know, outselling albums. I mean, it's, uh, it was a big deal, you know. But it's also because you can get all those songs on one record, you mm -hmm. know. And now it's there's really no need. You could download anything anywhere. Right. You know? Thank you, iPod, for killing it. Dude, do you remember when Guns N' Roses uh, did their cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door for Days of Thunder? Of course. Like, yeah. God, that soundtrack was like all over every end cap and kiosk in Walmart. Yeah. Hell, I bought the tape. I bought the single for it. I just, I remember movie that. Movie kind of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Usually the soundtracks did better than the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they did. Gangsta's Paradise with a cool oh, yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. Like, that would yeah. like put him on I'm, no offense to him he was pretty big like in the mid-tier but when that song hit and then basically that song is what made people go watch the movie right and, and the reality bites i think was lisa Loeb that launched her career i mean tv shows will launch people i remember the fray i think it was um gray's anatomy launched a whole bunch of new artists um oh. that's, still, that's a still way that's a, actually ironically speaking of this um the song I wrote, Pictures of View, blew up because of a show. What was it? It was with uh, Rob Lowe and Sally Fields, brothers, or was it family? Uh, whatever. I can't believe I forgot, but it was, um, it was played in the TV show. It blew up in Australia, and the, the TV show became huge in Australia. They used the song Pictures of You uh, for the, uh, the end finale. And they did like a three minute video of the whole thing and it took off. It ended up coming back, uh, the popularity into the United States, uh, you know, went top 10, number one in many different uh, categories and, uh, you know, radio formats and blew up. So TV shows can totally do that too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and same with uh, Daniel Patter, another guy that I, I had worked with um, and brought in that album was dead. That song had a bad day. Remember that? You had a bad yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was dead in the water. And then Coca-Cola France used it uh, in their campaign for Coke. Somebody at uh, American Idol heard it when they were out on vacation. There was some something like that, put it on American Idol and it exploded. So that 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 whole project was dead in the water until you know these little tiny things. Anybody could hear anything anywhere and it could end up affecting something. God, so. do you remember that movie Singles? Like oh yeah, yeah. Single-handedly, pardon the pun, but single-handedly responsible for the Seattle sound. I just I remember. Well, that. I was responsible for that. That was very big, but yeah, that was uh, that was uh, an. Um, I think that was Cameron Crow. Wasn't I that the one had Lane Staley as the mime? Wasn't that? Yeah. <laughs> wasn't it that movie? <laughs> oh, it was, yeah, it, that movie is incredible, and it um, yeah, it, it that culture it opened up in a film format. Uh, but Cameron Crowe is well known. I believe it was him who did that movie. And, you know, he also did Fast Times, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which That's had one of the, the best soundtracks ever. He did um, well, oh, Almost Famous, which is my favorite movie in the entire world, uh, which, you know, amazing soundtrack, but also had, you know, all the songs written uh, for um, Stillwater, which was the mm -hmm. rock band. If anybody hasn't seen that movie, I highly recommend it, along with reading my book, One Step Closer. <laughs> um, uh, but nice. uh, almost famous as this fictitious band uh, called Stillwater and um, and Wilson, I believe, co-wrote all the songs for the band. And there's it's a great soundtrack. But Cameron Crowe did singles, and uh, that all of his movies have killer soundtracks. Fast Times at Ridgemont yeah. High, 
that soundtrack um, opened up a lot of doors for me for like, you know, Tom Petty, Jackson Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Eagles had songs in there. I mean, it's just incredible, you know? You just uh, named Almost Famous. What are some of your other favorite movies? Uh, well, I actually live right across from uh, Universal Studios overlooking it in the hills. And my favorite movie, one of the things that made me want to move into this house was Jaws. Nice. Jaws is my all-time cool. favorite movie. I think ever next to almost famous. I'm super about like uh, character development, uh, right. and Jaws to me has some of the best dialogue and character development, um, storytelling, and lines uh, of any movie out there. And that's, I mean, that's what forty years old, something like that. That, that Robert Shaw scene in the cabin will still give you chills to this day. You know, if you just watch uh, it. Brilliant, brilliant movie. I love aliens. I, I love I love stuff a lot of movies. My man. That you know <laughs> that's my favorite movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's Jaws is probably Jaws and Almost Famous. And what, what uh, you know, Paul Fiction, uh, Quentin Tarantino is one of my neighbors, and I love a lot of nice. his stuff, his early stuff, true romance. Um, you know, Pulp Fiction, obviously. I just watched Kill Bill again, and he uses a lot of great uh music. So, you know, mm. he's opened a lot of doors, his soundtracks. Um, on Kill Bill, there's a song by this, uh, an Asian, uh, it's an older band or it's an artist called H-O-T-E-L-I or something like that. Um, but it's, that song is used in, um, Kill Bill volume one. And it's also, I see it in, in commercials. Yeah. And I know which one you're talking dope. about. Bounce, 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 bounce. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I know which now. one you're talking about. Really cool. And I, I had to research it and I looked it up. And that's how I found out who it was because I wanted to use that that beat. It's really cool. I sample it. So uh, you've signed a bunch of successful bands here. Do you have any uh, band that got away stories that you could just lay up? Oh yeah, uh, other than Matchbox. <laughs> oh no, I, one of my big well. So MGK, Machine Gun Kelly. I brought that in in 2009. I saw him perform in Cleveland, and I wouldn't say it got away. I tried to sign him to Atlantic Records. And, uh, you know, I sent the demos in, I go, we can do this really quick. You know, this guy's young and they were super pumped to do it. And my boss said, Oh, uh, he was still there. You know, he's the president and it's like, Oh, we pass it around. Nobody's really into it. And, uh, I was really bummed out and I should have just, you know, gone and worked on it on my own, but he, he had, uh, the same manager he has now. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, of course, machine gun Kelly blew up and, uh, there's, Another one where the, my biggest screw up was the killers. Uh, I went out, the demo tape was basically what they released as the album. And I went out to uh, Las Vegas to see these guys. And it was the first person to go see them. And they played in this small, tiny little strip mall bar uh, in about 110 degrees outside. It had to be 120 degrees and a thousand percent humidity in this bar with no air conditioning. And they were all packed on this little tiny stage. And it was the worst show I'd ever seen. <laughs> and my whole philosophy was, you know, live show doesn't matter as long as the music's good. And I just, I think it was so hot and I was so miserable. I'm like, oh yeah, I can't deal with it. I left and I always in the back of my head, I was like, but that, the demo's amazing. Sure enough, the killers blew up. And uh, that was the biggest screw up I ever did. Cause I didn't, I didn't abide by my rule about it. doesn't matter how the live show is because, Lincoln Park, frankly, was not very good live um, prior to them, uh, you know, actually finishing the album. Then they got to really know themselves on stage and became incredible live. So what would you say is the your favorite show that you attended as a fan? Oh, wow. As a fan? Uh, I'm sure there's quite a few, but I think it was Paul McCartney. Prince was amazing, but nice. just off the top of my head, Paul McCartney. And I got to meet him after the show uh, with Bill Clinton, Demi Moore. It was just crazy. It was just a really weird uh, evening, but <laughs> I was just blown away by Paul McCartney. I was, I was a big Paul fan, you know? Wow. And yeah, that was, was in the pretty back. epic. And then, yeah, I mean, sh- there's so many conscious that, uh, God, I mean, just seeing the ability to see like tiny little shows. I mean, I was just talking to a buddy, um, and this was not my favorite band or favorite show ever, but like I used to be, I used to sneak into concerts. Used to, I stole one of those uh, jackets, those yellow jackets, you know, that you wear for security. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I was I saying that, this, y'all remember. We joked about it. Yeah, I wouldn't say I stole it, but I just never returned it. So I actually did work for uh, this company. I think it was called CSC. Uh, and I would, you know, during law school, I was just so, such a fervent music fan that I would go uh, and go, hey, can I work any of these, you know, these shows at security? And I would drive out, you know, an hour and a half out to Irvine, you know, right after class, and you get paid minimum wage. But I, I was able to, like, be on stage and hold Stevie Nicks up while she was drunk, you know, falling over on the stage. <laughs> and, you know, I would always just kind of go off my own. They're like, oh, weren't you supposed to be out in the parking lot? I'm like, oh, no, that, that guy over there. And I'd be walking around. <laughs> and, of course, I, you know, I, I didn't get called back for that job. But I did walk away with a really nice yellow jacket. Um, and that jacket allowed me to go to pretty much any uh, show I wanted to. Yep. <laughs> you know, just walk in like, hey, what's up? My buddy you know, and I, when we started, uh, when we where, were, where are you working? I'm like, wait, didn't you work here a long time ago? I'm like, oh yeah, uh, I got called over to uh, area <laughs> F- FQ in the prime area. And so I just walk around, uh, but I got to see a lot of cool bands. And I actually got to uh, do Motley Crue's uh, Kickstart, I think it was Kickstart, My Heart uh, video at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Dang. Yeah, so I, I, I worked that and... Uh, like quote unquote worked it, <laughs> you know. And I was like, <laughs> I was back, and I was like, "Fuck the guys are coming." Oh, Kiss, by far. Um, and so I went on tour with Kiss, and I actually have Paul's broken guitars uh, because Paul would hand me the his guitar after the show. Like I was in the front row. I had a band called Beautiful Creatures uh, that I signed right after Lincoln Park uh, that spawned uh, the guitarist DJ Ashba, who was in Guns N' Roses. And huh. performed with Motley Crue and these with uh, 6 a.m., you know, with Nikki. Yeah. And so he was part of that band. So we got to tour with Kiss. They're my all-time favorite band live ever, I think. Um, they're just incredible, you know, showmen. And, you know, as much as people want to hate on them, I love that. I, there's so much great music from them, you know. Um, and it was just super, it was authentic in their aspect. It was just, you know, those guys are rock stars. You know, and as a kid, I used to dress up as, you know, Peter Chris. I was Peter Chris is the reason I played drums. And my my not my blood uncle, but kind of my uncle was the drummer in the Doobie Brothers. And uh, holy shit. Yeah, he uh, but I was adopted and it wasn't really my uncle, but it was kind of my close uncle. enough. So, yeah. And so we'll I, I used to go to his house and he was with the Doobies and uh, I used to, you know, I remember he's like, what are you listening to? And I go, I just got Destroyer. You know, the story on me is like, oh, God. And I go, I got I got Led Zeppelin. He's like, okay. And I used to play like Black Dog because that's the only thing I could do. I could like, you know, <laughs> on his drums. Um, but uh, Kiss was amazing. So I have, uh, Peter was, I'm not, I'm going to go out and straight out and say one of the jerks, I won't say dick, but yeah, he was super not cool. Because once I had Lincoln Park and I was on tour with him, Gene was, you know, really cool. I got to hang out with Gene at his house and, um and Paul was like one of the nicest guys ever. I have a funny story about Ace and uh, having to get pharmaceutical heroin dropped off by a, a helicopter because <laughs> he wouldn't play without it. Um, did, did you just say the words pharmaceutical heroin? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what it's called. It had to be administered from a doctor. But uh, I was backstage and I was like, you know, I'd taken photos with Paul and 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 Gene, and I was like. Up to, I came up to Peter. I'm like, man, I go, you're the reason I'm in the business. I go, I idolize you, you know, and, and I go, can I get a picture? And he goes, no. And I'm like, <laughs> you're, you're joking, right? I'm like, can I get a picture? He was like, no, no photos. I'm like, man, I go, I, I work for Warner Brothers. Uh, you're, you're touring with my band right now that we're, you know, we're open. He's like, I go, can I please get a photo? He goes, no, leave me alone. I walked away. Fuck. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so. Sounds like everybody it. said, don't, you know, don't mess with Peter. So when I went on tour with him at Mandalay Bay, uh, yeah, I snuck in and I sat on his drum set, took uh, two of his sticks and was up there like this, you know, I have photos <laughs> of that. So Peter, I have your drumsticks and I, yeah. Hey, <laughs> like I said, not never meet back. your idols. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now this is, I love Kess. They're, they're fun. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so Jeff, so any. Go ahead, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt you. Oh, no, no, anything else. I mean, like, yeah, I'm good. I love talking rock music, so. Same. <laughs> so what's the best piece of business advice you've received to date, you'd say, that's helped you out the most? Advice? Um, 
Wow. I, I don't know if I've ever gotten advice per se, but the, the best advice I can give is listen to people that are valid critics, yet only listen to the parts that you think you can improve and don't I actually should I maybe take that back. I would say, listen to everybody, be open to communication, be open to changing, but follow your authentic vision because a lot of times, you know, I'm so close to things. People are like, hey, I'm not feeling, it, I'm not feeling it. And I have to take a step back and look at it from an objective point. And it's very difficult to do as an artist because I do write and produce a lot of the bands I work with. <clears throat> and the ability to step back and be objective is very, very important. And that includes listening to people and, and going, hmm, let me see what other people are, are thinking as well. Uh, and then a lot of times uh, the ability to listen is, is important. You can improve things that you may be too close to that you aren't seeing, I guess. I don't know if I'm explaining it the right way. But yeah, on the flip side, it's that follow your gut and don't give up. You know, and don't, don't take rejection as uh, an end-all be-all. You can go through 100 rejections. All it takes is one person. That's probably a more positive thing. You can go through 100 rejections and all it takes is one person to, like the 101th or 101st uh, <laughs> got person to believe because that's all, that's all life is. Some, you're going to have a believer, you know? Right. Just like every house that's for sale, it gets sold. You know, yeah. everybody may say, no, 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 I don't want it. But there is somebody that's going to want to live right next to the freeway. You know, so everybody gets rejected. If you stopped at rejection, we wouldn't have so many of the greats. I mean, one of my favorite authors is Stephen King, and he had a right. nail in his bedroom wall that he would pin rejection letters to, and it got to the point where the nail wouldn't hold the weight of the letters. And if he had given that's up, he lost out. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot of no's. But had he given up, we would not have had one of the most prolific horror writers of all time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the same story with, with everybody. And that I think that also makes the artist better you know the constant rejection and the, and the forging for because you don't the people who give up it's really not in their soul to you know to do it um yeah if you give up it's definitely going to be a no you know you're never yeah. going to get anywhere if you give up and also my other ma mantra is uh you this is a wayne gretzky uh quote but you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take you don't i think i say that, that every day yeah <laughs> and you know it goes for anything in life you just you just gotta go and you know take your shot you know and it goes for it's not just music or whatever you just go you know i think about that all the time if you don't if you don't make that call if you and again i apply it because everybody can relate it to you know relationships if there's that one person you're like oh, i want to talk to them and you let the moment go away and you don't then you're gonna you know somebody else is gonna meet that chick or the guy or whatever you know and uh, -huh. uh yeah, the, the what ifs are always harder than the no's, in my yeah. experience. <laughs> the what's the what's are harder than the no's? I said the what ifs. You know, oh, yeah. you'll you'll yeah. take oh, the rejection, you'll eventually get over it. But you could be wondering, well, what if I had done this for so long, and it'll it'll eventually get to you, but you can get over no. No, that's yeah. absolutely true. The what ifs are harder because yeah, yeah, like oh, I could have. I hate when people say, it. and I, I I don't the whole you know generations of people that come up now they're like oh i'm doing this that and the other they're just talk you know everybody talks 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 put put your words into action which is i guess um you know super true in anything you know it's very mm -hmm. easy to talk and uh, social media these days allows everybody to portray who they are whether it's true or not you know right. you can show what you're doing and that's a uh, you know that only get you so far uh it's really actually doing uh, and following through with what you say you're going to do, which is, uh, you know, part of being authentic, speak, speak the truth, speak your truth, you know, and do what you do and act it out. So well, said. well Jeff, uh, I'm not going to keep you hostage all night. Uh, what else do you no have on the horizon? Uh, well, I've got this movie, which if you're a horror fan, so I have a movie screenplay that I'm hoping, uh, we're going to get this huge actress, Regina King. I'm, I'm hoping, uh, but it's a, it's a horror slash psychological thriller that I've been talking to Blumhouse about, um, about five celebrities who find themselves, uh, who with intertwined past all find themselves in rehab. And of course there is a, a killer in amongst the group. And there's a, you know, a TV psychologist who's the, the lead rehab person. 
uh, who's like a famous, you know, Oprah slash Dr. Phil. And all these celebrities are in different, you know, genres of uh, celebrity, you know, basketball players, chef. Uh, you've got the comedian, all young and very diverse group, you know, um, and uh, very, very exciting. Uh, so I have that. I have the book One Step Closer. I've got a docu-series called Unsung Heroes, which is the story. Uh, it's uh, a series of stories from the 60s to present day uh, about uh, the history of ANR and what it takes to make it and the, the behind the scenes uh, stories of the ANR people on the front lines giving their soul and their passion to discovery of new artists and what it, they had to go through to bring these artists to light. Uh, I've got that and then I'm working on a, a couple different podcasts of my own. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing uh, virtual uh, shows with uh, Rob McDermott, who's the original manager of Lincoln Park, and this guy, A.D. Uh, Roundtree, who's over at iHeartRadio on the music business. And uh, yeah, a lot. And you then I managed, going artist, managed three different artists, too. Uh, I mean, virtual well, shows, like virtual concerts? Uh, well, I'm doing personal virtual talk shows, or not talk shows, but virtual lectures. Got so, nice. um, you know, we're doing Kevin Lyman's uh, USC lecture. He, you know, Kevin is responsible for all the Warp tours. So he's uh, he's got something at USC. So I'm doing that, uh, be, I believe, in the beginning of April. And I used to do these conferences. Uh, and if there's listeners out there, uh, I'm, I'm going to start doing them again. But I used to go out and lecture on the music business, how to get in, um, what it takes, you know, what what a &R people look for. And I would do it with usually a music supervisor, another A&R person, go out to different cities. And then I'd like I would lecture like at Michigan uh, University of Michigan Law School or at different colleges, you know, all across the country. And additionally, I lectured in Italy, Dubai, all that kind of stuff and do a um, a show afterwards, usually a two night show where people would perform and we would do um, an analysis of the music afterwards, like a one on one. And I've discovered actually some uh, several artists like that who I signed to major labels. But it was actually a kind of a one on one performance, bring your friends. And then we go in a back room and discuss your music, the performance, marketability, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of an educational scenario. So I'm going to start doing that again. So if there's anybody listening around the colleges, um, you know, I've got like Loyola out here booked. Um, I just did UCLA. But once uh, COVID lifts, I want to go out to different colleges and do these along with interns and set up these uh, kind of conferences where I can actually see the local artists perform and then potentially help them. Awesome. Uh, Jeff, sure. sorry, I do have one more question for you. One more and that's it. All right. Okay. I'm just so <laughs> I'm assuming, uh, and back in the day, is there a lot of, I'm assuming there'd be a lot of heated com competition between A&R folks, like guys just, I'm signing that band. No, I'm signing that band. I saw him first kind of mm -hmm. deal. Was it pretty brutal? Is there a lot of, um, yeah, I'm, well, you know, in my past, I signed artists who nobody wanted. So, right. um, you know, nobody wanted the, the corn deal. Nobody signed, tried to sign Limp Bizkit. Um, nobody, I couldn't get Linkin Park signed. Nobody wanted to sign Macy Gray. So all my biggest artists had zero competition and I was doing small deals. So I didn't really have that. But um, I, always, I was always kind of early on the scene for artists, almost too early, like with Machine Gun Kelly. Um, but yeah, there was always, you know, competition and pe people that are followers always would just bid up uh, the, you know, the, the fees or the advances. And um, yeah, there was always competition. I did have one thing uh, with Fred Durst that I tried to sign and the artist actually provoked some drama between me and Fred because Fred had his record label flawless and uh, he goes, Oh, I heard you're trying to sign this band and you're, you're trying to up me, you know, on my rate. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's just the artist trying to incite you. And it started a big argument with me and Fred. And uh, yeah, it was always drama with, with, you know, A&R people, you know, you don't trust them. They'd, they'd, be, they'd be like, ah, I didn't really like, and they go home and like, Oh, I'm, you know, they go back to the office. Like, we got to sign this band. You know, I was like, <laughs> just throwing people off the, off the scent, you know, just the nature. So of the uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't tell. I remember when I had Macy Gray, the manager came in and she dropped uh, Macy as a manager, but she played me the tape because I didn't like the other band she was uh, playing for me. And she goes, you don't like it, do you? I'm like, ah, no, I don't like it at all. I go, can I have the tape? You know, and then I just followed up on my own. I didn't want to, you don't want to give off the scent that you're into something because then, you know, the, the, 
then you've got competition because people really don't have a mind of their own for the most part. They just go after what anybody else is trying to sign at the moment. I mean, there, there are some great A&R people, but for the most part, uh, the business uh, of A&R, especially now, is following trends. So, yeah. All right. I just had to ask. I figured there'd be some fist fights back in the day or something. <laughs> no, no fist fights. Maybe a little spitting in somebody's coat, but no. That never, that never happened. All right. Well, Jeff, it's been a great talking to you, and we'd love to have you back on any time. Dude, yeah. Well, uh, keep the sure. keep the contact thing. I would love to just, if anything, every now and then, just shoot you a random email and pick your brain about. If yeah, I we should we should uh, uh, everybody. If you want to go follow me, I'm I'm always posting cool shit. Uh, you know, from rock bands and photos. My uh, my Instagram is at Jeff Blue Music. That's at J E F F B L U E M U S I C. Uh, same with my Facebook and, uh, so yeah, you know, feel free to follow. And I, I, am super active with that stuff and yeah, very cool. Groovy. All right, Jeff, we uh, appreciate you, man. You, you have man. a great night. Absolutely yeah, guys. Take care. Thanks right, man. You, you have a good evening, dude. You too. Man. Thank you.